Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. call to confession today is from Luke 23, verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. We see in Simon's carrying of the cross a picture of the work of the church throughout all ages. We are the cross-bearer after Jesus. We have to remember then that Jesus did not suffer so as to exclude us from suffering. He bore the cross, not that we may escape suffering, but that we may endure it. Christ releases us from sin, but not necessarily from sorrow or burdens. God's word plainly teaches this, that difficulties, suffering, hardship, persecutions, trials, are not only the natural consequence of a fallen world, but are part and parcel to the Christian life. Matthew 6.24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Philippians 1, 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 2, 3. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And lastly, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How easy it is for us to forget this. How often we seek out the easier path. We want the blessings of Jesus, but not the burdens. We want to follow the victorious King of Kings, but overlook the fact that he was a man of sorrows. We want the forgiveness of sins, but not the cross it took to accomplish it. We want the resurrection, but not the death of self that must precede it. We want righteousness, but without persecution. We call ourselves disciples of Christ, but too often we behave as the original disciples did in the garden, deserting our Lord when hardship comes. And it is no surprise that we behave this way. Suffering is painful. Hardships are overwhelming. Persecution is scary. Bearing the cross of Christ is no trivial task. But let us comfort ourselves with this thought, that in our case, as in Simon's, it is not our cross, but Christ's cross which we carry. When we are heavy with guilt of our sin and weary in the battle against it, when we are struck with grief, the loss of a loved one, when we are called once again to set aside our own desires for the sake of another, when we are mocked for our faith or harassed for our devotion to God, then remember, it is not our cross. It is Jesus' cross, and and what an honor it is to carry the cross of our Lord. Let us also not forget, just as Simon did not bear the full weight of the crucifixion, so also we in this life carry but a tiny fraction of the full suffering of our Savior. Likewise, Simon had to bear the cross for only a little while, and yet it gave him lasting honor. And we carry the cross, the carrying of our cross is so temporary, yet in doing so faithfully to the end, we receive a crown of glory. 
surely then we should embrace the cross of Christ instead of shrinking from it. God's word reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins together. Father, again, we gather to hear you speak. Thank you for faithfully recording your word and keeping it throughout the ages that we might know the truth and be set free. Oh, the bondage under which we are born, the enslavement of our passions and our desires, our weaknesses, and our unwillingness to seek after you. They are great, Heavenly Father. They are, they are too much for us. We cannot, we cannot live apart from you. We have been damned. We are unable. We are unable to recover. Yet on this day, on this day, you give us hope. For, for the penalty, the wage, the debt has been paid in full. Open our eyes our ears change our hearts to hear the truth of your word that sets us free that we can now say thy will be done in Christ's name amen Christ is risen these words Sometimes we add hallelujah to the end of that, right? Praise the Lord. These words, known as the Paschal greeting, have been uttered as an Easter custom by Christians throughout the ages. In fact, if we lived in Eastern Europe, we would also exchange the triple kiss on alternating cheeks. I'm not sure our comfort level with that personal space but that's how we would do it. Based on the gospel account, as we even read in Matthew today, this greeting is used to affirm the profound truth that the early disciples found so encouraging, so emboldening. emboldening. He who was once dead is now alive. Really, it's true. It's not just a story. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just a fable. And while this statement is a worthwhile tradition, we, as modern believers, have another powerful way to affirm that truth. It is our daily life in Christ. Indeed, truly, it's true. 
As we live in obedience to God's word by the power of his Holy Spirit, we demonstrate that Christ's death and resurrection are real. Indeed. Really. It's true. And, according to the Apostle Paul, the way this works out in the life of believers is for them to be found dead and alive. These paradoxical statements that don't seem to coexist do exist, do coexist in the life of believers. In Romans chapter 6, Paul lays out an argument that explains the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And in using some hermeneutical calisthenics, I was able to put together an outline to remind us of this deadness and aliveness. And if you look at your uh, outline there, we are able to see these points that Paul is making. First, we are dead. He's going to work through a dilemma. He's going to pose a question. And then he is going to expand that. He's going to elucidate. He's going to provide some elucidation for our, to help our understanding. And then to bring it home, he's going to provide us some application or he's going to amplify that truth. And then he's going to call us to some decisions. Our dead. And to do that, to work through that series of arguments, he's going to show us how to be alive. He's going to answer the question. He's not going to leave us to answer it. He's going to provide the answer for that question. And he's going to show how our daily life is linked to the death and resurrection of Christ, both in likeness and in life. And he's going to show how that provides implications for daily living. And then he's going to show how it can be verified. What's the veracity of that truth as we live out the eternal experience? Alive. We are dead and alive in Christ. Now to understand this from Paul's argument, we need to back up all the way to the beginning of Romans. Now, we're not going to do that in a deep expositional um, uh, series today. That's, those are multiple sermons. And I hear the tomatoes and other things will be flying here soon. So we need to uh, uh, move along. But just as an overview, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul communicates clearly that God is righteous. And man in his nature subverts that truth. Sub subdues that truth and comes up with his own truth. And so God's wrath has been revealed or poured out on, ma on man's uh, subversions. And then at the end of chapter 2, he, he deals, he makes a statement to help the Jews understand what God is doing through this whole process. It's no longer just with the nation Israel. And it's no longer following the law. But the Jew is one who is not just outwardly a Jew, but inwardly. It's not about circumcision. It's not about following all the laws. But it's about the new heart. It's about the circumcision of the heart. And God is expanding his kingdom. And from that point on, he goes through a series of questions. 
rhetorical questions that he asks and answers to kind of guide the reader through an understanding of what this means. What has God been doing throughout history? He points out that God is faithful. He does judge both. uh, He judges unrighteousness because all have sinned. And therefore, we need someone who's a propitiation. And Christ is that substitute. Christ is the propitiation. And because of that, he is the God of all. Jews and Gentiles. We don't understand the all in that context. Not every single person, but all peoples. And he is the God of all. Jews and Gentiles. And they are justified by faith. Even Abraham... Who showed great works. It was a matter of faith. God is always. Always justified. By faith. And through that justification. Man is now at peace. With God. Because God demonstrated his love. Towards us. And while we were yet his enemies. While we were his. While we were sinners. Christ died for us. And through that propitiation. We have been reconciled to God. And we have the the, um, role of reconciliation, as Paul expounds further in his letter to the Corinthians. And he helps the reader understand that while death reigned from Adam through Christ, death was the one that reigned, law was brought in so that man could know what he was doing right and what was he was doing. What was the standard? What was expected? What, who is this God? And what must, how must man measure up to be accepted? Yet grace was brought in as a means to give righteousness and justification. So he's covered all that in the first five chapters. And at the end of chapter five, he makes this statement. In verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that statement leads to Paul's question that opens chapter 6. What is the question here in 6.1? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Seems like a pretty logical question. Right? Sin is here. Sin is great. How much grace do we need to cover that sin? Great sin requires great grace. Well, we love grace and we want more grace. So let's sin more so that we can gain more grace. Logical. Valid. But unreasonable. Right? What is Paul's answer to that? Certainly not. May it not be. In some places, in the King James, I think it says, God forbid. How can you think that way? How shall we who died to sin 
live any longer in it. While the question may seem logical, it's irrational. It's unreasonable because it's contradictory. It's contrary to the very act that's happening with sin and grace. It's not as though more sin produces more grace. It was the fact that there was great sin that great grace was necessary. It's kind of like your medical insurance. Right? We get sick. We go to the hospital. Maybe your insurance will pay the bills. Well, we love having our bills Hey, so let's go get sick some more. Oh, I'll get sick some more because look, my bills get paid. Oh, that was fun. I enjoyed that payment. I'm going to go get sick some more. Well, that's logical, but we would say you are you're unreasonable. Why would you want to continually get sick so that you can enjoy the benefits of your medical insurance? Isn't it better to enjoy a life of health than just the benefits we're getting from our insurance policy? And that's what Paul is arguing. And in Paul's mind, that seems like a pretty clear argument, but he says, aha, maybe, maybe some people weren't paying attention in the first five chapters. Maybe they didn't understand clearly what God said. And so he's going to elucidate for he's going to help us understand really what it means when we talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. He's going to offer the clarifying question, right? Okay, this seems pretty clear, but maybe, just maybe you do not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Do you not understand that point. And so he wants to clarify. And through it, he helps us understand that role of baptism. What a beautiful summary in our Heidelberg Catechism today to remind us that baptism is not just some memorial, not just some simple sign, not some just act of obedience, but it has implications. It's a symbol of what is actually happening as the Holy Spirit washes us clean. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. And we are in a fellowship. We are in a union with Christ. And that union comes in his death and his resurrection. If we want his death, On Friday, we need to be in his resurrection on Sunday. And vice versa is true. If we want his resurrection today, we have to participate in his death on Friday. It's the chemical reaction difference, right? The difference between solution and Well, what's the other word that we do? Compound, right? In a solution, I take some water and I take some salt and I put them together and the salt dissolves in it and we call it 
salt water. And if I heat it up, the water evaporates and the salt stays. If I cool it down, the salt falls out and the water stays. It's just a solution. It's a mixture of the two. On the other hand, if it becomes a compound, if I take some hydrogen and some oxygen, two gases, and I put them together in the right equation, it produces water. It's a single compound that is not easily separated by sitting there. It is a single unit. It's not just a mixture. And that is our life in Christ. As we have been, as Christ has died and resurrected, our baptism with him puts us in his death and his resurrection. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We celebrate Good Friday for that death of Christ, a horrific, horrendous, terrible occasion. And yet it brings, it was necessary, that death was necessary to bring the new life of what we celebrate today. The new life of Christ, which also is the new life of a believer. Just as a seed, when taken and put it into the ground, must die. It must rot. But as it dies and rots, it produces new life. It produces the plant. It produces the tree of new life that looks different from the seed. In baptism, Paul reminds us, the power of sin is dead and new life is produced. John Calvin in his commentary on this passage says, the death of Christ is efficacious to destroy and demolish the depravity of our flesh and his resurrection to effect the renovation of a better nature, and that by baptism we are admitted into a participation of this grace. We are dead and alive in Christ. Truly, really, it's true. And after clarifying this point, Paul moves on to expand it a little bit, to give some application in the, in the application of the lesson as he talks about our union with Christ in verses 5 through 11. And he does this in a series of couplets or comparisons in order to unwrap this truth. In, in the first verses here, he, he shows how we are linked to the crucifixion of Christ. It's a likeness. It's, it says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do we believe that God, that Christ really died on Friday? 
Do we believe that Christ really died and rose again on Sunday? Were those actual events? If we believe that, in that likeness, our life is impacted. We really die, and we really become alive. Because we are linked to Christ in his death. Believers are grafted together with Christ. We're not just growing beside him. We're grafted in, in both his death and resurrection. And Paul is going to close this section in verse 23. What's Romans 6.23 tell us? The wages of sin is death. But that doesn't end there. The gift of God is eternal life. The wages are paid in full. The debt is paid off. Think about if you, your house mortgage or your car loan. Right? We may still be paying on our mortgage. Some of us may have paid that off or some of us may have paid off a car loan. Once we pay off the loan... We typically don't continue to make monthly payments on that mortgage or loan. While I've never experienced, I've seen others actually have a mortgage burning. There's a great celebration. There's great rejoicing. If If they pay off their credit card, they cut up that credit card so they don't get in debt again. And when the bank calls and says, excuse me, Mr. Vanderhoof, You did not make your mortgage payment today. I don't respond, oh, so sorry. I will write out a check and send it to you immediately. No, what do I say? I don't have to pay anymore. It's been paid in full. I'm not going to pay anymore on the loan that's been paid off. Likewise is our position in Christ. The debt has been paid by the death. We are dead. Really, it's true. And now we are alive in Christ, free, no payment due. Really, it's true. Matthew Henry speaks with us and says, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings, his agonies thy repose. His conflicts, thy conquests. His groans, thy songs. His pains, thy ease. His shame, thy glory. His death, thy life. His sufferings, thy salvation. Really, it's true. We are alive. We are free. Because we have died in Christ and we have resurrected in Christ. We have that link to both his death and his resurrection. As Paul says, the life of Christ, starting in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. We are free because Christ 
is free. Christ has paid the penalty, the debt, and in Christ, he no longer has to pay a price. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. And since sin and death had no power over Christ, they had no power over us. Since sin and death had no power over Christ, they have no power over us. Because we have been linked to Christ in his death in resurrection, as Paul elucidated, explains even further to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All, all things. Here, the all, we can include all things. All things have become new. Much like changing a job. Right? If I go from one employer to another, the old boss can no longer set my schedule, tell me what to do. I shouldn't expect my paycheck to come from my old company. I shouldn't expect their benefits or lack of benefits. If I'm a freed prisoner, I should no longer report to the warden on a daily basis. That would be ridiculous. Why would we do that? We have a new boss. We have been set free from prison. Why would we continue to live as though we were in the other situation? In the Vesperal Liturgy of Holy Saturday, this proclamation is made. Today, Hades cries out, groaning, I should not have accepted the man born of Mary. He came and destroyed my power. He shattered the gates of brass. As God, he raised the souls I had held captive. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. Death, where is your victory? Where is your And this is a truth that Paul uses throughout. He permeates the rest of his writings. To the Corinthians, he talks about being reconciled and being ambassadors. To the Galatians, he talks about being crucified in Christ and Christ living in us. Ephesians, that favorite verse, we have been saved through grace under his workmanship that had been prepared beforehand. Philippians talks about having the mind of Christ, living like him into the Colossians. Talks about putting off and putting on the old man and the new man. This truth, this death and life have implications for us today in this moment. For the death In verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. What's true for Christ is true for those in Christ. Indeed, really, it's true. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, it says, If you've been made alive in Christ, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a simple mathematical equation. What happens on one side of the equation must happen on the other. Right? 2x plus 3 equals 11. How do I solve that? I subtract 3 from one side, subtract 3 from the other. I get 2x equals 8. What do I do next? I divide by 2. 2x divided by 2 is x. 8 divided by 2 is 4. x equals 4. It's a balanced equation from top to bottom. That's what happens when Christ died and the debt was paid and he rose again. The equation for us was balanced. What happens to Christ happens to those in Christ. And so that leaves us, as Paul says, with some decisions to be made. We still have a role to play in this. How do we verify that we understand this? What's the veracity for this understanding? Verse 12, therefore, if, since, since all this is true, not if this kind of works out this way, no, since Christ has really died and he has really resurrected and those in Christ have really died and they have really resurrected what should take place do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin Paul goes back and answers that rhetorical question again should we sin more that grace should abound Absolutely not. Stop it. Stop being passive in your life and stop being active in your sin. Put off, be active in putting off the old man. Follow Christ's example of putting off the sin of having dominion over the sin. Christ's example of death, defeating sin, is what we should be practicing every moment of our new life. Now here's where it's tough, because it's tough. It's hard. And just as we recounted on Friday how hard it was for Jesus to go to the cross... And what he endured. And what he suffered. And what he went through. 
in order to die. We likewise need to have that struggle in order to make it to the new life. Peter reminds us, how can we expect anything less? If they persecuted Christ, they are going to persecute his people. Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. That's an indication that we are in Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with Pastor Lockridge's famous sermon, right? It's Friday, but Sunday's a come. As he recounts, right, the death of Christ. He talks about how the hell and the demons and, Satan thought, thought, and the, the Romans thought they had victory, but Sunday was coming. Brothers and sisters, it was Friday. Sunday is here. We live Sunday every day. No longer does death and sin have dominion over us because we are alive in Christ. And so Paul says, rather than giving in to our sin, we need to, in verse um, 13, present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul in a Colossians said, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. We've been united to Christ in his death, united to Christ in his resurrected, united to Christ. In his life, we proclaim that Christ has risen indeed, not just with words, but with our lives. And these decisions that we make each day are predicated on this fundamental belief found in verse 14. For sin shall have no dominion over you, For you are not under law, you are under grace. We want grace. We should not sin more. Do we want grace? We should not put ourselves under the dominion of death. Do we want grace? We show it. We live it. Because we have been given it. That's the grace in which we live. We are in a different position. We are in a different location. We have moved from the plantation of the harsh master to that of the kind master. We have been traded from the perennial loser to the championship dynasty. We have resigned from the unfortunate company and been hired by the Fortune 50 company. We have moved out of the hut of the peasant and we are now in the palace of the king. We have now moved from death unto life. 
Really. It's true. In his well-known work, Les Mis, or Les Miserables, Victor Hugo recounts the story of Jean Valjean. And early in the story, as Jean Valjean is released from a 19-year sentence in prison, he's making his way to meet his parole officer. And he has to be there in four days. And it's an extended trip. And on the way, he's hungry and he's tired and he's befriended by a bishop who feeds him and provides him shelter. In desperate need for money for his long journey, Jean Valjean again follows his thieving tendencies, for that's what he served 19 years for. He steals the silverware from the bishop. Continues on his journey. And in the process, he knocks out the bishop so he can escape safely. The next day, the authorities return with Jean Valjean carrying his bag of silverware. And they're looking for the bishop to press charges. Much to the surprise of the authorities... And Jean Valjean, the bishop does no such thing, but says he gave the silverware to Jean Valjean. It was a gift. And the bishop expresses that he was surprised that Jean Valjean did not also take the silver candlesticks that were worth much more because they were a gift as well. In the end, the bishop gives Jean Valjean the silverware, the candlesticks, forgives him, and sends him freely on his way. And he makes this statement. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy for for you. I withdraw it. From the black thoughts and the spirit of perdition. And I give it to God. The rest of the story is about Jean Valjean living a life of kindness, service, and forgiveness to his fellow man. It is a story of redemption. It is the story of a Christian. Christ's words to Martha that we read earlier Today, as, as she expressed concerns about her brother's death, are good to be reminded of again. In John 11, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? It is true. Indeed. Really. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. 
and he will return again. May he find us dead and alive in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. O oh God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and who taught us Ephesians 3, Paul writes the following prayer which captures the impact of God's love for his people. Verse 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Those of us who are parents know how we have demonstrated love for our children as we have stooped figuratively and oftentimes literally for their well-being. How much greater is God's love demonstrated for us when the creator and ruler of the universe sent his son to earth and then to have his son committed to horrendous humiliation and even death? The love of Christ in its sweetness, its fullness, and in its greatness and faithfulness exceeds all human comprehension. To give us a fuller idea of the love of Jesus, we need to understand his previous glory in the height of his majesty and his incarnation upon the earth in all its depths of shame. Humanly speaking, the depth and shame came in those last days of Christ's life on earth. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was stripped and then nailed on a cross between two thieves. God's love for his people, however, didn't end in that empty tomb. It was also in the last week of his life on earth that he established the Lord's Supper. Here again, God's love is extended to us as he invites us to commune with him. So it's because of Christ I welcome you to this table. Christ's body is broken for us. Let's join in prayer together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.